All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is Tina Nawin. Tina, I think a lot of our readers, listeners, your readers, mm-hmm. probably are in common. Um, she is uh, a political reporter and correspondent and kind of analyst, pundit, thinker, whatever. I, I read your stuff. It's sort of like a mix of stuff from what I can tell mm-hmm. for Puck, and, and you've done this for Politico and for Vanity Fair, uh, and you just wrote an awesome new book called The MAGA Diaries, and Corey Epstein uh, is joining us as well. Our listeners know Corey. He's hi. Sometimes. Um, hi. So um, your book's coming out January 16th, mm-hmm. and it's you know, obviously, we were just discussing before we started, like, timing is perfect. Like, the day we're recording is the Iowa caucus. But the, bo- the book both is and is not. It's, it's, it's about Trump, and it's about that world, but it's also really about you and kind mm-hmm. of your engagement with it and, and your coming of age in a lot of different ways. So I guess the first question is, like, what made you decide that this was the right time to write that book? Was there, like, a moment where you're like, I got to tell the story now? Um. So people had been asking me to write this book for like years and years and years and years because when I started reporting during the Trump era, everyone's like, wow, you have like this really deep insider knowledge of this world that like we don't understand. How do you know this? And I was like, well, I used to be a conservative activist in college and my first jobs were in conservative journalism. And then they look at me and realize, wait a second, you're a woman of color and your parents are refugees and you grew up in Boston and you went to all these elite and like how how the how the hell did this happen um pause am I allowed to swear yes yes like what the fuck happened (laughs) (laughs) and I it took me a really long time to be able to process that on my own um just because it comes with so many different layers of like I'm a journalist but I made these decisions as a young person did I do it for the reasons everyone thought I did? Did I have like any sort of like internal biases? Was I kind of racist? Um, and the more I went back and I was like, wait, no, there's a lot of other factors and incentive structures that are built into becoming a professional conservative mm-hmm. that like not just informed my reporting, but and also my upbringing, but my entrance into the mainstream media my coverage of Trump, my understanding of how politics just works in general. And then right after January 6th, I went back to my agent and I was like, all right, I know what the book is about now. <laughs> there you go. So so when you first, though, you know, were, were sort of forming your different political views at, at, at when you were young um, and you sort of landed on the, okay, my views tend to, to be conservative, um, like, what do you, how would you describe what your worldview was like then and how you saw the world? And by the way, we're not, just to be clear, like mm-hmm. some kind of like super woke podcast, we're now going to like make you recant your past because then you then absolve mm-hmm. you of your sins. Like you didn't commit any sins. You're allowed to have whatever views you want. Oh, dude, if I saw, if I pitched this book as I committed so many sins as a young mm-hmm. person and now I'm here to pull back the veil, like that's just not me, man. Right. <laughs> um, but... I would say when I was younger, uh, two factors informed my entrance into the right. Uh, The first was my realization that just because you were smart doesn't necessarily mean that you will get ahead in American society. Mm -hmm. So both my parents were refugees and immigrants and really brilliant people. Like my mom got her PhD from Harvard. My father taught there for a little bit and um, worked in the medical schools and like Mm -hmm. Harvard. But... They also, like, the moment they entered Milton Academy, my this 
prep school in Massachusetts where I went on scholarship, they were like, wait a second, like we have these prestigious degrees. If we were back in Vietnam, the fact that we had these degrees would be enough for us. But like now in your America, you're like have to have social standing, you have to have money, you have to be able to like navigate a world of power. Like my classmates were Kennedys. This was not rich, this normal rich people. These were like powerful American families. And after my mom graduates as valedictorian at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, she enters academia and she's like, wait, exactly how much money am I making again as an adjunct? Like, this is not enough money to raise a family on. And then my father realizes, you know what, I need money. So he decides to go into multi-level marketing schemes. Mm -hmm. And the moment that, like, you're friends, parents sit down with your parents and their parents are like, hey, and your parents are like, hey, um, so have you heard of um, this company called Melaleuca? And you like get your friends into it and you sell products to your friends and then you sell it to their friends and they're like, no, 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 this is, uh, this, this is not how things are done. Um, and as it grew up for like, as I grew up, like not only did that social scene just like close to my family, mm-hmm. but also the process of getting into elite institutions like Harvard or Yale out of high school became so dependent on what it was you were able to access and fill your application with. Like, I was pretty good at school, but I wasn't like interning at the UN in the summer or like going to the Interlochen School for Performing Arts in Michigan, uh, which my classmates were doing. Mm-hmm. So that was part one of it. Um, And then part two was I loved the founding fathers, like love, love, love the American Revolution. What's like the one trait that you liked most about them? I was a John Adams stan, like hardcore John Adams stan, a big, big super fan. And he was so like irascible and headstrong and like, no, this is I believe in the fundamental rights of man. I think that. Even if the, like, look, I understand that there was a giant riot in the the Boston Massacre and all these British people ended up killing a whole bunch of Bostonians and the Bostonians are definitely angry, but I think these men have a right to a fair trial. So I will defend the um, British guys, the British soldiers. Mm -hmm. And everyone was super pissed off at him for that, but like he, but I don't know. Got it. So all of that then leads you when when you start becoming a conservative activist at Claremont McKenna, like mm-hmm. what's that? Okay, so you, you have these views uh, that you love the founding fathers and I think very shaped by some of the economic realities of, of making in America and, and, mm-hmm. and the, the class differences. And then that leads to what? It leads to the going to Claremont McKenna, which like had a lot of um, like institutional advantages for mm-hmm. someone like me like great college, threw a lot of money at me, but then they also had like strong ties to the overall conservative world, but the libertarian moment at that period of time, which was like, wait, no, the government's collapse, like these government bailouts are happening to these institutions that were fundamentally broken, the banking system. And like, why is it that our money, our taxpayer money is going to save these guys? the philosophy kept del- like developing more and more. Um, and it was like, all right, limited governments, do not tell me what to do. We believe in the meritocracy. Like, 
you work your ass off, you love America, you love your family, good things will happen to you. And not only did they believe that, but there were like institutions that were devoted to studying these. Like when I went to Claremont McKenna, one of the things that drew me there was um, a literal research institution on campus called the Salvatore Center for the Study of Individual Freedom in the Modern World. And I just like, yeah, yes, I want to. This sounds great. I'm going to go here. <laughs> so so you have that experience and then you go into conservative media mm -hmm. and coming out of all of that, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you join the mainstream media, right? It's a there's a lot that there's happens a, between there. I'll, it's like let's let's, let's rewind because after after Claremont, um, I'm a little bit closer than you, Bradley, to my early career, and I was I was calling you I, old. Yeah. I was feeling I was I was feeling your struggle in the sort of beginning middle part of the book when you start a job, then like you had a really sketchy boss, or there was uh, money troubles with the Daily Caller. Um, the politics were like totally crossing a red line. The fund there was this mysterious funding stream for one of the journalism jobs you were working on. So there's a lot of barriers in your way. Mm -hmm. Did you ever like stop and think, did I join the wrong team in covering the right? Is this, are these too, are there too many warning signs here? Maybe I should go down a totally different path. Oh my god, absolutely. So the reason I got into conservative journalism in the first place was the Institute was connected to a larger conservative professional network. Um, the Claremont Institute was its sort of like patron organization outside the colleges themselves. And the Claremont Institute um, has been around since the 70s and is now sort of regarded as the intellectual engine of Trumpist policy and Trumpism and nativism. And um, back then it really wasn't like that. But um, they were still connected to this giant jobs network and a career network that just ties into the general conservative movement as a big, big political industry, like an industrial, philosophical, political complex. Like, that's the best way I could describe it. Uh, you go into this world and you're like, oh, my God, like, why am I invited to these black tie galas all of a sudden? Why am I smoking cigars with Andrew Breitbart? on the balcony of a fancy hotel. Uh, why is it that I'm suddenly getting thrown these paid internships in journalism? Is it because I'm a liberty-minded student? That sounds great. So like, I was literally going to libertarian journalism camps for students. And like, I had this job for the summer lined up. They were paying for it. It's kind of maybe through the Koch brothers. But like, one of these one of the criteria was like okay you got this scholarship now you have to go to this seminar and so for three four days and i've made i made so many friends there who ended up in journalism and a lot of them in conservative journalism mm -hmm. so they were just like looking for people with that instinct to stack the media with libertarian leaning journalists right. uh and from that program i got assigned an official mentor like the guy who ran the journalism program had a secret project on the side called the IHS Mentorship um, Program, I guess. And he was like, all right, you are very promising. I am going to help you with your career. I'm going to look over your resumes. I'm going to edit your cover letters. I will connect you with people who I know in my network who are looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to the Daily Caller, because he knew a guy who knew, the who knew the guys at the Daily Caller and was like, I need a tech reporter. And I was like, okay, cool. And so that's how I ended up at the Daily Caller. But um, going back to your question earlier, though, uh, 
I ended up leaving the Daily Caller because of really sketchy questions over the funding. Uh, but then I go back to this mentor because I'm thinking John Elliott is he promised to do this thing for me. He literally has assigned himself as my mentor. And then he started connecting me with these people who were looking for reporters ostensibly. Mm -hmm. But the more I interviewed with them, the more I'm like, oh my God, you are asking me to actually be a political hatchet man. Like my first job, my first interview was with this group called Accuracy in Academia. And they wanted me to like crash these academic conferences to mm -hmm. write up all of these bad socialist things that the people there were talking about. And like my mom was an academic. I just couldn't do that. Like, yeah. so I told them, no, I couldn't. The second intern, the second job opportunity was a um, reporting internship in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was specifically asked to report on teachers unions and how terrible they were. Uh, this was 2011 when yeah, they were having right. that clash with Scott Walker. Uh, that was weird. The third one was, and this was when I broke from the movement completely. Um, the third one was when I picked up a job as a stringer for a paper called the Colorado Observer. It was about to launch and they needed someone in Washington to, uh, I presume, cover Colorado-based things. But when I started working with this editor, I realized within days that he wanted me to write really, really, really negative stories about Democrats and specifically Democrats from Colorado. And there was one story he pitched me and I was doing some research to try to contextualize the story. And I was like, wait, like, why are you mad at the Democrat for doing it when the Republican is doing it too? And he goes, well, the thing is, is that no one covers the Democrats. If this guy were a Republican, the post would be all over him. So we have to be on him too. And I'm thinking, but the thing is, is that like his, you're only hitting this guy because he's a Democrat and you're ignoring this guy because he's a Republican. So I looked into his background and he'd never held a job in journalism. He was a former staffer for a Coke network thing. And then before that, he was the chief of staff for this guy named Tom Tancredo in Congress who was like- Oh yeah, that guy was nuts. Yeah, exactly. Why was he my editor? Right. So at that point, I just like was like, fuck it. I'm quitting. I'm burning down my career. I'm moving to New York. What's the first job I can get? Food blogger? Okay. <laughs> so you, so you, you did the food blogger, and I, I do think that would be a, a sort of a fun ending question, but mm -hmm. I want to jump. You, so you said you left the movement, mm -hmm. but if you continue reading the book, and even to now, like you still cover the right, um, maybe from less inside the movement in one line that I thought was amazing. Um, you said the GOP had this extensive training ground. Democrats were a mess, never organized. It wasn't that I couldn't map the left, I realized. It was that the left had, relatively speaking, nothing to map. And I think even though you might have taken a step back from living in and being part of the politics, you, correct me if I'm wrong, were just fascinated by the organizational structure and the heft that the right wing had compared to the left. But if you look at the news from this past week, I think you had both Florida and Michigan uh, Republican activists there taking down their their state party chairs. Mm -hmm. are, are the tables turned? If you were to be writing about, if you were writing, if you were 10, 15 years younger, do you think when you were starting your career, you'd still find the organizational prowess of the right so much better than the left right now? So here's my grand unified theory of MAGA. Um, 
the conservative movement as a machine has existed for like 70, 80 years at this point. Um, it was started in the Goldwater era when a whole bunch of um, anti-communist figures came together. Barry Goldwater, I think, was the head of it uh, informally. And they were like, wait, no, society's moving forward way too quickly. We don't like what LBJ is doing. We don't like the idea of communists in the government trying to strip um, our civil rights or like our version of American rights out of government. Um, let's invest a lot of money, not just in getting our types of people elected, but also training the next generation of young people to enter Congress and enact this conservative agenda over decades and decades and decades of waiting. Like here is the best example of how long this movement has been going on. Do you know how Mitch McConnell is very old? Like, he's an old, old guy. He started off in this movement in his 20s. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, so given that, but you yeah. understand the perspective yeah, yeah. of a Trump voter, a Trump supporter, a hell of a lot better than mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're sitting here in Manhattan on the Lower East Side and most people walking by probably don't, right? They've mm -hmm. probably never even met, you know, a Trump voter. Um, or if they have, they don't realize it. Right. Um, so... What do you what do you think that people in politics and media mm -hmm. sort of fundamentally don't understand, and and how do you use that kind of insight to inform your work? Mm. Um, so going back to my grand unified theory of um, MAGA, the fact that the movement exists to this extent is like the first half of it. Um, the thing is, this movement, when it exists over time with a lot of people throwing money into it and a lot of people coming up with ideas of exactly how to get conservatives into government and policy and culture, it becomes less of like an organic movement and more of an industry. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental flaw of it was always that our version of conservatism is, be is best for America. We are here to protect it and we believe that people on the right believe this too. And then, like, Trump comes in, and all of a sudden, it's revealed that most of the base actually kind of wants to do populism instead of, uh, for, like, free trade, free market, yeah, right. free market economics, and, uh, like, obeying the Constitution. And the movement is like, oh, oh, gosh, okay, um, we've had no immune system against populism for a while, so how do we, like, do we try to protect our the beliefs that we've professed to hold and defend for decades, or do we like try to maintain not just our power, but our way of life? Mm -hmm. And they pivot towards MAGA very, very quickly. And when you start throwing um, research institutions, politicians, uh, media organizations, what have you, towards like keeping Trump in office or at least defending him from liberals and Democrats and whatever, like the amount of like tribalist group think that emerges from this movement, like combined with the fact that there's so much power in this infrastructure, uh, leads not just to, you know, the right being sort of a Trump protection racket at this point, but, but like the rest of the country who believes that like Democrats are not their thing uh, start going along with it too. And so do you feel like the kind of, so we've got this moment of populism slash authoritarianism 
kind of in the U.S. with sort of the support for Trump both in 16 and then feels like right now, if you have to guess, he's going to win again in 24. Um, but then around the rest of the world, you know, there's versions of this too, right? Mm -hmm. Putin and Xi and Modi and Netanyahu and Bolsonaro. Um, where do you think kind of the American movement uh, is, is unique based on kind of having gone through it yourself? And where do you think it's just reflection of the world feels worse than ever and therefore um, people are just unhappy and anyone who's talented enough to exploit that unhappiness can gain power? I would say a bit more of the latter. Look, like neoliberalism promised that everything would be solved with open borders and free trade. That clearly did not happen. If anything, that started building a lot more resentment yep. as the people in power were like, all right, how do we make things cheaper so we can do more free trade? Uh, and once that failure becomes clear, the xenophobia kind of starts accumulating on top of it and on top of it and on top of it. Um, I do think the American right and this is going to be a really hot take that is going to confound a lot of listeners who are like outside conservatism world is that a lot more minorities in America are falling into Trumpism and MAGA. And it's not because they it's not because all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, white people are the best. It's like they are afraid that the instability that came out of left-leaning policies are coming to their doorstep and like if you're an immigrant especially like especially from a country that was destabilized by communism socialism losing jobs whatever like the idea that you came to america worked your butt off tried to become like did everything right to become a citizen and integrated into american society the fact the idea that that could all go away is terrifying and there's such like a deep, 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 like PTSD reaction almost to the prospect of like progressive socialism coming to their, like being in their lives again. Like that's how their lives were ruined in the first place. So if you go to like the Mexican border, you will find a lot of like American, like Latino citizens being like, actually we're going to vote for trump because he actually cares about the border and like all of these people from these unstable countries are coming in and taking like making our lives unsafe taking our jobs yes but like also making our lives unsafe our towns are being overrun and i remember talking to a progressive podcaster during the book tour and i was telling him this and it was just like his reaction it was like he was trying to shut down and then convince me that minorities should be voting for Democrats because the Republican position is clearly xenophobic and racist and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, you are talking from a privileged white man perspective, sir. <laughs> right. So does does the Biden world understand this? Because it seems to me that the Democrats and the left especially are kind of their own worst enemy, right? And that they just kind of keep using the same talk. It feels like they, they keep thinking well, if we could just show people one more example of why Trump is such a bad person, then everyone's going to get it finally. And mm -hmm. then they're all going to realize that they have to support Biden. And I think, you know, my view is at least they get it They're Every voter is well aware of who Trump is, who he isn't, what he is, what he isn't. And those people that 47 percent or whatever in the polling that's saying we prefer him to Biden are making a trade off. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not unaware of it. They're just deciding that in the totality, that trade off is worth it to him. 
Um, so what should they be doing differently? Oh, this is a longstanding problem with um, progressive institutions in the movement. So, um, and I detail this in the book in really, like for chapters and chapters and chapters. Uh, I actually tried to cover the progressive movement in the same way that I covered the right. Mm -hmm. Like the rights and infrastructure, the right has all these networks. I was like, does the progressive movement have them? They absolutely do not. And the more I spoke to Democrats versus progressive versus donors and whatever, the, my, the more I was like, okay, the problem here is that the progressive movement wants the future to happen as soon as humanly possible. And because they want to get there as quickly as possible, they do not acknowledge that there are institutions, there are barriers in the way, whether it comes from like convincing voters, trying to meet the voters where they are, having this idea that, you know, compromise right. is a thing you could do. Um, and they don't plan far enough in the future to get to that point. Right. Like, or, or they envision this like utopia. You know, they have a, they have a sense of the past and the grievances mm -hmm. of it. And some of that's certainly accurate. Uh, a goal for a vision for the future. Mm -hmm. And then little regard for like to even just to get to their own version of the future. So much disruption has to happen that mm -hmm. you can't the politics don't actually work. Right. Like, here's an example of the way that Republicans and conservatives do long-term thinking. Yeah. Um, Roe v. Wade has been a target of conservatives for decades. Yeah. Like, they have tried to figure out ways to either, like, curtail it or, ideally in their situation, roll it back. So, over most of the Obama administration, whenever Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans have a chance, they try to keep federal seats open. They try to keep federal seats, like, not federal seats, like, they try to keep ju judges, like, yeah. judgeships open. They do it at the federal level. They try to, like, do it at the appeals level. They try to do it at, like, a lower court level, if possible. And then when Scalia dies and Obama tries to appoint Merrick Garland, McConnell goes, no, we're keeping this seat open as long as possible. We refuse to even let him have a confirmation hearing. And the idea is that you just keep that seat open so that when you have, like when it's time for a Republican president, he can appoint a guy. Like, yeah. okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. But then you start looking at the backbench too. Like so many, cons like I think maybe about like a third of the federal judiciary was appointed by Trump during his administration because those seats were open. And now they're full of people who are vetted by the Federalist Society, who've had these long backgrounds in conservative academia. They've built this judicial theory of how American society should run. Um, do you remember in you remember when there was that federal mask mandate that was repealed mm -hmm. by the very young the very young judge in Florida was it her yes yeah. and the initial mainstream reaction to her was like oh well she's super young she's kind of dumb and I'm, like I started looking into her background and was like oh oh my god no you're really linked into all these conservative legal networks and like she was a fellow she was taking like fellowships at the Claremont Institute and like networked with all of these people I think she actually. She was part of some program along with um, John Eastman, the January 6th lawyer. lawyer. Um, and so I was like, well, what happened here is not that she was young. It's that she was vetted in this network as a promising young person, put in this judiciary, this judgeship for life. And now she's going to enact all sorts of conservative policies at a federal level. She could be the next uh, 
Mitch McConnell in 50 years, just like he's been part of this network think, for however, 60, o- 60 years or something. No, more like, a, hold on that. No, yeah. more, more like a um, Amy Coney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so Biden's... Okay. Oh, sorry. I just... Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it was interesting to me because Bradley, you just wrote your book, uh, and we know from the book publishing process that you have to stop writing and sort of lock the text um, a very long time before it publishes. Your book actually sort of ends with Ron DeSantis on a high note. Mm. And today we are, today is the, as, 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 as Bradley said, is the Iowa caucuses, and there's a real chance he gets third place in the Iowa caucuses, which would certainly be a low note. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you do spend a little bit of time talking about him, focusing on him a bit in the book. And I'm just curious to hear um, what you think happened, how he went from sort of king of Florida to really flaming out and sort of what's next for him or his style of MAGA politics. Mm, I don't know whether, I don't think it was his style of politics that was ultimately a killer for his entire career. I think his campaign was just really bad. Like they had so much money and then they hired too many people. And I wrote a story about him and his wife, Casey DeSantis in their political operation in like 2022 or something. And the thing I took away from it was that they were so paranoid that they had that like they would not allow other vendors to work with them and they wanted control over everything. And so when the DeSantis campaign started laying off people, I was like, okay, they hired way too many people. They spent their money on things that they could have just outsourced. They did a lot of weird messaging just for the sake of like ha- like being someone who did something new. Like why announce on Elon Musk's, uh, why, why do a live stream with Elon Musk to announce your campaign? Why not just like remind people that you have a face and a family? Because they don't know you other than you're in Florida. And so, like, the campaign was just like face planting after face planting after face planting. And maybe if he had a better operation that knew how to position himself in front of people, that could have worked. I do wonder whether the conservative movement will continue to invest in a DeSantis like person or whether the lesson they'll take away from it is like, no, we're just going to go full MAGA. We're going to let this guy run over the Constitution and then rear, like run back over it. Um, the DeSantis way of doing things was like, we're going to do all the MAGA policies, but we're going to do it in a calm way that obeys the Constitution. And Trump is just going to be like, what's the Constitution? I just want this thing to happen now. Fuck you, libs. Right. So Biden, who, you know, obviously you're, you're covering and watching what's happening in, in Washington the last three years. How... In terms of the effectiveness you were talking about, that Fair Society and Leonard Leo and kind of that the, of the Trump world taking their ideology and really installing that in the judiciary and elsewhere, has Biden done the same thing? And if not, is it lack of organization, interest, competence? Why not? He definitely hasn't done the same thing. Um, it, I would definitely, I would say it's a combination of all of those. Look, Obama did a number on the ability for Democrats to find the next generation of uh, talent. They don't have a, they don't really have a backbench anymore. The DNC itself has been completely hollowed, and at this moment, I think Republicans hold like two thirds of the state legislatures across the country, and a lot of them have super majorities. So like Dems can't do anything, yeah. but it's not an issue of like they're not 
like people don't want Democrats in office so much as it is like there are no Democrats that they have at that level. And someone floated this um, observation to me, which I actually kind of uh, agree with, which is that the Democrats have gotten were used to having one singular person at the top setting the agenda and hopefully the rest of the country really liked that person too so they would just kind of go along with it mm -hmm. yeah. um biden certainly doesn't have the like ineffable charisma that obama did yeah. um he doesn't have the like energy to really really keep that movement together and also there's just that lack of organizational prowess that the right does have yeah and not just not just like a prowess but like a mindset of unity yeah I, I remember so i worked in the senate like 20 years ago i was chuck schumer's communications director and mm -hmm. i noticed like at judiciary committee hearings like the democrats were kind of a mess like they're wandering in and out mm -hmm. no one's coordinated they're asking like random questions that don't have any particular point to them the Republicans were like, they're on time, and they were totally coordinated. They had their talking points, and like mm -hmm. they had a message that they wanted to get across. And like I didn't agree with their message, but it felt like these people have their shit together a lot more. Right. And you want to know what happened with with the Republicans that made them like that? Literally, pro like when they were in college or something, and they went to a seminar. Someone sat them down, and they were like, "All right, here's how you take notes. Here's how you go into an interview. Here's how you all work together." And like something just as basic as that can pay off so much in a future situation like what you just described. Yeah. But you have you have these you have you sort of document in the book these conferences where they're teaching you like how to send a thank you note, how to how to network at a at a at a networking event with cigars and whatever. But then you also document these like sketchy back rooms or uh these these you go to really rural uh oregon i think it is mm -hmm. and you you go to this um S bundy-esque uh super right wing anti you know federal government meeting where all these people have guns so you have this group that it seems much more informal that was mm -hmm. not trained at the at the Washington, mm -hmm. you know, leadership training conferences, and then you also have the other half that is super uh, trained in this. And are these, you know, how do you see these groups working together separately? Do you think uh, one group has more power than the other right now? Mm. That's an interesting question. Like the thing about those groups is that they, like, the leadership is in some way probably like through at least social ties connected to the wider movements overall so the one group one of the groups that i mentioned called the convention of states literally their entire idea is we can use an article 5 convention to overturn the constitution and make our own amendments um pretty power like pretty like under the radar but super powerful and the founder is an original member of the tea party like yeah. mark meckler and uh, and the thing is, like, within these groups, there's always, like, one fringe weirdo who has a crazy idea, such as, let's, gonna do, let's like, teach people how to read the Constitution and use guns. Right. So if, if this level of organization appears again, but with a different ideology or, or movement, it, where is, it, is it, like, some sort of new independent fringe or something that is, like, I'm, I'm making this up, but like mm -hmm. either 
climate or a techno optimist or a techno, uh, you know, dystopianist or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Like, it doesn't seem like the Democrats have what it takes to put together everything you just described. Mm. Does it just never exist except from the far right? Or do you think it will see it sort of emerge in a new way? The thing is, is that, like, it will only be effective after it pays off for decades. And you have to keep right. a group together for that long, which unless you are a right wing person who can trace their lineage back to like the early days of your grandfather reading national review probably not going to happen i mean look the there's a coherent world view inside the right that has consistently believed society is moving forward too quickly and it is their duty to make sure it doesn't happen so fast um, it dates back to the work of Edmund Burke in the 1700s, where mm -hmm. he was writing about um, the fact that the American Revolution happened successfully and the French Revolution ended in bloodshed. And he was like, if things move too fast, it's going to end up with this terror. And honestly, I would rather maintain institutions that go against the values of a revolution, even if the values of a revolution are overall a good thing like in a vacuum and people should try for it like either do it incrementally or even maintain an institution like the monarchy in that case right um and overall that has always been the goal of the right stand athwart history yell stop in the words of buckley and it is easier for a movement to stay still and try to move a little bit backwards than try to chart a vision towards the future. So let's let's talk a little bit about the future. Um, you talk about the Conference of States as something that's sort of bubbling under the mainstream um, that is in some parts of the right very popular. Um, you documented QAnon for a long time. Um, what are you hearing from the right wing now that our listenership or sort of the mainstream might not be knowing about? There was, there was, it was very anti-vax for a while, anti-mask, anti-drag queen, all this book banning. Is there something um, from the social point of view that the far right is working on that hasn't been talked about, like the Conference of States? What are you looking out for? Hmm. Um, is there an next QAnon that we don't know about? Definitely not an next QAnon, but. The proliferation of tiny, tiny, tiny little right-wing media outlets in a vast aggregate, I think, is going to be shaping the public conversation more than people realize, just because there are too many of them. So I have a theory that I lay out in the book called The Infinite Fringe, mm -hmm. and it's sort of based on this question that I kept asking early on when I was covering the right. Why is there no one trying to get rid of these fringe people? I was thinking about the way that William F. Buckley, um, the founder of National Review, was trying to push the John Birch Society out of his movement. And he was able to do so quite successfully, took a lot of energy and a lot of political capital. But what I realized was that like, he was a singular person who could dictate what was and what was not conservative. And his goal was to make sure the movement was acceptable to the mainstream so you can't have a guy who claims that like, the entire academy administration is like controlled by the Jews. And in today's media environment, that cannot happen. So you can have your you can have Fox fire 
tons and tons of people, but they keep they're unable to stop them from starting their new thing online. And if Tucker, like Tucker Carlson, I think is a prime example of that. He got fired from Fox. Everyone was like, oh, he doesn't have power anymore. No, he's constantly online, constantly putting his ideas in the world. Now he's making money off of it from streaming, but like he could not be shut up. If Tucker Carlson had someone in his organization who was like really, really, really crazy, he could fire that person, but that person could take his following with him, start his own crazy person thing. If someone in that organization got fired, right. and so on the, and on the, and the, on the, and on and on. The medium now leads to infinite spawn. Yes, exactly. And maybe their audiences get like more and more minuscule over time, but there are just so, it is just like, atomized into a bigger blob of like ultimately disliking what was in the center and what was the organ the handful of organizations that could dictate the national conversation and the more that like this amorphous blob grows and grows and grows the less likely people will be able to know what is and is not true uh I think the worse civil society is going to be. Like, I have run into actual like students at these events who have seen Nazis, yelled at the Nazis, like they didn't like Nazis, but they didn't believe that the Nazis were Nazis at all. Hmm. They were like, "Oh, these guys are paid um, Antifa. Antifa, or like right. from some guy who wants to make us look bad. They're like they're trying to ruin our lives." But I'm like, "They're Nazis." They're actual Nazis. It's nice that you don't like the Nazi aesthetic, but can you not recognize a Nazi versus a fake Nazi? Like, why is your mind jumping to this isn't a real Nazi? Right. That's messed up. So, Corey, we should end on your food question because it's a fun one, but let me ask one more Trump question before we do that, which is, so let's say that he doesn't win, he goes to jail, he drops dead, whatever it is, P post-Trump, assuming there's not another term to sort of further sort of consolidate power mm -hmm. what happens to MAGA does it like does someone else come in and sort of become the figure or does it metastasize in lots of different ways or does or do the kind of leaders you're talking about for the conservative movement kind of say okay now let's bring this back around to something we're more comfortable with like what, what happens next mm. I think the sec your second option of like the movement just metastasizes and grows like wild like the reason that maga is effective right now is because trump has said not just like has a ridiculous amount of charisma and amazing communication ability it's that he is at he like set a standard for how one should act as a maga person mm -hmm. that yeah. no one will be able to replicate precisely the way that other people in the movement would like to have them replicate it so I easily see it falling into a whole bunch of factions that are constantly trying to destroy the other. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that they also do have that memory of what the infrastructure did look like as a whole. So it will splinter and get really, really ugly. Like, you're sort of seeing this in Congress right now. Um, I've been covering at Puck the uh, speaker yeah. insanity and... At the beginning of the McCarthy speakership, there was a really tiny group that was able to hold their like hold everything together. But in order to extract more concessions from McCarthy, um, they kick him out, and Mike Johnson comes in, and everyone initially looks at him in his background. They're like, "Oh, he's absolutely MAGA," but he is not MAGA. He is a conservative hardliner, yes, but he does not have the MAGA aesthetic, and he does not have the MAGA strategy. 
Like the fact that he is working with Democrats in order to keep the government open and in doing so making concessions to uh, things that the Democrats will absolutely never go forward on is just so anathema to a smaller subsection of the um, group that tried yeah. to oppose McCarthy yeah, yeah, right, right. that like these ti- this tiny group of people are like, no, we will shut down the government if you like give the Democrats a single penny more. Oh, and it's just like over what any amount of money guys. So, so like at that point, exactly what is what is movement conservative what is maga conservative what is like any sort of republican conservative cohesion look like frankly i don't really see it so right. so go, should we do our hard pivot yeah i want the answer to it too even though it's totally hard we're pivot. gonna end with a go hard ahead. pivot because in the middle of the book you have i don't know maybe four pages that are very not politics but you are a food blogger here in new york city we're reporting we're recording this live on the lower east side um you're back in new york you used to cover the food industry here was there any place um while you were on your quick trip here you had to go back to are there any places you covered that closed and you're that you're dying you wish you could go to have you seen the industry you know change over the years um is there some crazy you know meal or comp experience you got when you were a food oh blogger? I'll never forget. Like, let's end on a fun note because oh. it's not often we get a food blog former food blogger on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, do you remember when food blogging was a thing? Mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, man, I am always trying to find a good bagel in New York. Like anywhere that there is a new good, there is a good bagel place. I am immediately there and. Not only do I have my bagel sandwich, I buy like two dozen bagels and take them back to bring back. Train. We're ripped by Russ and daughters. I know that was what I'm headed there right okay, after good, this. Okay, good, good, yeah. Um, if I can find pizza, I'll do it. Um, I really miss dumplings. I really miss going into a random place on the street in Chinatown, and this old lady throws ten dumplings in a metal pan at me. And I'm like, all right, cool. Here's four bucks. Um, Places that have closed. Oh, my God. There is a, uh, speaking of Chinatown, there is this one place on Bowery that was this little tiny um, storefront where you could get a box of rice, barbecued pork or roast duck, and then a bunch of steamed cabbage. And that was it. And that was my favorite place ever. Um, just like stop in there for lunch and then you sit watching some like children play basketball. Uh, what was the other question? Oh, is, is there any is there any crazy comp or meal experience you had writing New York? I remember you said in the book that you went to all, you would have to drink tons of cocktails every night at these different networking events or different restaurant openings? Is there any one uh, or any particular chef that stands out from a crazy experience you had while on the beat? Oh, um, Eric Repair at Le Bernardin. My first actual three-star Michelin experience was at a um, dinner that GQ threw in honor of uh, their food critic, Alan Richmond, and it was a roast of him by all of these big-name chefs in the city at the time, Bourdain, like Anthony Bourdain, Daniel Belloud, Eric Repair, and there was a four-course meal served, and I think that was the, f- and there was this piece of salmon that I remember so distinctly having, and I was like, that 
this is amazing. Wow, this is artistry. I I can't really I can't be a dick to these guys anymore. <laughs> so it and worked. That, the PR spin worked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, no, just, yeah, like I the, the trick to great PR is salmon. Yeah. 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 Oh, really good salmon. I've had some yeah. bad salmon right. in my time. It's got to be good salmon. Yeah. All right, uh, Tina. How do people follow you? How do they subscribe to follow you and Puck and mm -hmm. and all that other stuff? All right, subscribe to Puck because support independent journalism. It's great. Yeah. Uh, Puck dot news um, slash author yeah. slash. And Tina we're fans Wynn. here. We've had John on a couple of times. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, John Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on Twitter or X or whatever at Tina underscore Win. Um, I'm on Instagram at the last Win, as in there were multiple Wins once, and I am the last. Um, pretty sure you could easily find me on LinkedIn if so inclined, and uh, yeah, and the Magic Diaries will be available at wherever books are sold. There you go. Uh, the Magic Di the, sorry, the Magic Diaries: My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How It Got Out. Tina Nguyen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining. Woo. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNTNet, where home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.